what implication uh, does this have, or what bearing does this have at all uh, on, and it might have nothing to do with it at all, so just tell me your thoughts on this, uh, judicial deference to congressional enactments or to congressional interpretation, but what we might sometimes call the presumption of constitutionality. It seems to me it might be one of two things uh, that cut different ways, and I'm wondering if liquidation has anything to say about that. On the one hand, it might say only defer to Congress if it's engaging in acts uh, of liquidation or at least an adjudication that's a piece of liquidation, I don't know if it has to be completed, rather than deferring, uh, having some sort of broader based presumption of constitutionality. On the other hand, I think interpretive conventions themselves can potentially be liquidated, in which case maybe a broader presumption of constitutionality itself has been liquidated as an interpretive convention over time, at least since Justice Chase said it at the beginning and, and <coughs> been continuously evoked. And so I'm wondering if one of those two is more convincing if liquidation has any bearing on that at all, and maybe it doesn't. Maybe um, it doesn't have any bearing at all, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. All right, um, so at the end of your comments, Will, you said that liquidation is uh, as legitimate as it was um, you know, when uh, in, in the founding time period, but that's a boring answer, so I'm gonna uh, ask when, at least with the information you have now, you think um, liquidation, uh, liquidation should trump an independently arrived at um, construction of original meaning? Because I can think of four possibilities. One is always. Uh, two, uh, only when the liquidation, the interpretation that liquidation has given us is a permissible construction in a kind of, if there's a set of permissible interpretations and constructions. Um, three, if it's just an unimportant issue, like why are we gonna upset the apple cart? There's so much reliance. Um, and four, this idea of kind of, you know, it, there's not a legitimate or illegitimate answer. It's just this is what happens, and it was necessarily going to happen. And I should we should have a theory describing and explaining what is happening. That liquidation will sometimes trump a better uh, original interpretation. So I, I guess I wanted to hear more from you, Will, about the the relationship of liquidation to originalism in your thinking. Because given the nature of this conference, there's a point in the paper where you say something along the line of. <laughs> Um, perhaps if this is right, originalists will have to give up on original meaning a little bit or, or yield back off of it a little bit, <coughs> suggesting that this is inconsistent with originalism. And of course, at one level, it seems quite inconsistent to say that constitutional meaning is determined by facts that happen long after the framing. But at another level, as you, as you mentioned, you know, maybe this is an original method, right? That maybe this is a way in which it was understood that constitutional meaning would be crafted. Um, and then, you know, if, if Madison is right that liquidation only comes into play in circumstances in which there is indeterminacy as to constitutional meaning, then, then we're talking the construction zone, right? And maybe this is just simply a one permissible method of constitutional construction. And then maybe it goes sort of to Christina's question, does this, is this a trumping construction? If in fact there has been a liquidation, are people free to engage in, in Randy's construction or anyone else's construction? Or are they now bound by this as an original method that, that, that fills that in? What, what exactly is the relationship here between what you're talking about and your or general theories of originals? Uh, okay, so I don't know, but I'll guess. <laughs> um, so I think, assuming it's right, as I suspect it is, that, that this liquidation method is sufficiently widespread that it is one of the original methods uh, or was part of the original law of interpretation, <coughs> if you prefer. Uh, assuming that's right, how does, I think that, that gives me a chance at these kind of questions. So 
I don't think it was. I, th I don't think it was understood to be just a kind of practical. This is the way things are, and so we've got to accustom ourselves to reality uh, theory. But that that might be an artifact of my reading Madison. So if you read Marshall, sometimes he sounds more in that practical theory of interpretation, and I'm not positive about that. Uh, and I don't think it's limited to unimportant uh, things either. Uh, I do think it would have to be limited to permissible constructions or permissible interpretations of the Constitution. All that's kind of built into the definition of liquidation itself. The, the requirement of a constitutional indeterminacy is partly requiring that it not be something that's clearly wrong. Um, now, this kind of relates to then Tom's question, which I think is, what is the relationship of this theory of, of construction to all the other theories of construction? Uh, a problem that comes up in interpretation generally, right? So do you apply the rule of lenity before you apply Chevron, or do you apply Chevron before the rule of lenity, and how do you stack all the different uh, rules of interpretation? Uh, I'm even less sure there. I think that liquidation comes in relatively, relatively late uh, along that line, that, that you've sort of discern the meaning, you discern the meaning as, as best you can using all the different methods of interpretation. And if it's uh, ambiguous, then liquidation comes in. But a lot may turn on how ambiguous it has to be. So it could well be, I think it would often happen for lots of us, that you have a provision, you go through various methods that all kind of keep pushing you in one direction, but they never push you to being certain or saying, you know, it's definitely determinate now. There's still indeterminacy. So liquidation could still be, be doing a lot of work. But, but I'm even less sure about, about the answer there. Um, Ilan, uh, I don't think, uh, and I have to learn more about this too, I don't think I would say that the sort of canon of judicial deference to Congress is liquidated now. Uh, you see a lot of different formulations of, of what the judiciary should do, and you often see sort of them talking out of both sides of their mouth, like, of course, we defer to Congress, but the ultimate decision is ours. So, or maybe it's another way of saying something is liquidated now, but whatever that is might turn out to be very weak. Uh, and not do a lot of work. Uh, I don't think the, like, the strong formulations of that are, are liquidated now, but uh, I could just be wrong about that or not reading enough. All right, next trio is Larry Alexander, Cy Prakash, and Chris Green. Yeah. Oh, well, interesting paper. Um, this is, I, I, think, I think my question is, is going to be, you know, similar to, to Tom Colby's, I'm gonna put it this way. So if, if you need indeterminacy, suppose, just let's take Noel Canning, for example, and suppose recess and happen are, at first glance, they're ambiguous. We, we don't know. So um, that might be something that we could liquidate over, over time through a series of decisions. But then suppose um, a good, good oral advocate Produces compelling evidence to a court that the uh, you know there's a there un, the, that the ambiguity has disappeared. We now know precisely what they mean. I take it then that you know it, one question is can the liquidated meaning ever trump the actual meaning as determined later? Secondly, suppose that it remains. Uh, indeterminate. It's vague. It's not just ambiguous. We 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 need to um, um, put some put some flesh on it because it you know the the am, there's no ambiguity to resolve. It's just a question of vagueness. Um, now you give some sort of Burkean reasons why filling in for the the vague area 
through this through this method of liquidation that that has certain virtues and and it you know settle, it settles it settles the matter but what if then uh, Congress or the president comes down with a decision that upsets the liquidated settlement um, can a court say that that's unconstitutional is that is there is the settlement of the same dignity as the Constitution because um, by hypothesis the Constitution is vague needed filling in does the does the sort of Burkean virtue of filling it in via the sort of settlement trump a current view that this is perhaps a better set you know this is a better way of filling in the vagueness Uh, Will, I really like the paper, and I just have three quick uh, uh, comments, I guess. You have one question with three parts. Well, I'm going to be quick, because I I know other people have uh, real questions. So I I thought, looking at what Madison said over time, he was just all over the map, right? In the debate of 1789, he says, we're going to permanently expound the Constitution. He doesn't say that, you know, we're going to look at, we're going to do this repeatedly over a series of statutes, and then we're going to hope the public acquiesces. He just seems to talk about liquidating right then and there. In one, full, in one fell swoop. And then when he talks about the 1815 you know, signing statement or veto statement, he says, you know, this has already been decided. But in 1811, there are people fighting this, right, including the vice president. And so what happens between 1811 and 1815? It just seems like he's pretending there's some sort of acquiescence when there isn't, right? And so, like, I don't think he really believes that either. And, and when people say that people have acquiesced without any formal decision, it's just a fiction that you're, you're going to say that so you can justify whatever you're going to do. And I think that's what's going on. And then the third point, um, I understand your point to be that if we debate something five times in Congress, we passed a, a bill that reflects a particular constitutional construction, then the sixth time, if no one says anything about the constitutionality of, of the similar bill, we've acquiesced, and then Madison's sort of magical liquidation has occurred. But if, if we do it once, we have a debate, and then no one else debates it again, that's not enough for there to be liquidation, right? Because there's got to be a public disagreement each time. And I, I guess I find that hard to believe, right, that you're going to have five different debates on a constitutional issue. Because I think people are probably going to acquiesce sooner, right? So is it two debates that you need where people are pressing it, or three? Because the more you require, the less likely you are to have the conditions satisfied that Madison's talking about. Um, so uh, it seems to me there's a, definitely a difference between the Federalist 37 Madison and the later stuff. And I mean, one thing that's striking uh, to me is, is reading, uh, so I was just looking through the, the founders.gov uh, uh, Madison stuff. One of the first things in it is <coughs> Madison's notes on logic from Princeton. So he's taking these notes on Isaac Watts's logic book. You go back and read Watts on um, and his philosophy of language, circa 1724. It is almost exactly like Federalist 37, and it's all the you know all these different ways that logic that, that language can be equivocal. And and you if you look at the whole context of Federalist 37, it's just all this you know we don't know. I mean, people are complaining, oh, this Constitution, we can't tell what it means. But Madison said, well, there's all kinds of stuff we can't tell what it means. You know, give us a break. I mean, it really seems just epistemic. And then, I mean, he doesn't say settle in, 37, in, in, in Federalist 37. The settlement stuff comes later. So, I mean, one way to think of liquidate 
is just it's just clarify. You know, so all of McGinnis's stuff on clarification is really what liquidation is. Then you have this other thing, settlement. And I mean, there's a, I mean, one way to think of it is uh, the way Marshall uh, puts it at the, at the very beginning of McCulloch, where he says, uh, there's a huge reliance on in- interest here. It would have to be awfully clearly unconstitutional for us to, uh, to undo that. So one way to think of it is, well, when you've got a settled practice, you get these bigger and bigger and bigger reliance interests. In order to overturn an apple cart of that size, you need a super clearly, uncon- you know, it's got to be super clearly wrong. If you think it's merely probably wrong, that's not enough. Um, a number of the things that, that Madison said sound a little bit like that, so I'm, I'm, I'm just curious uh, to the extent to which we can harmonize all these different Madison uh, things with that picture. I mean, that's what uh, uh, Justice Stevens says. I mean, Stevens, the originalist, the day he retires, he said, if the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause were clear enough, we should overturn Slaughterhouse. Uh, uh, it's, just, it's, just, it's just that it's not clear enough to overturn the 137 years of precedent. Uh, uh, so to the extent that's the, the view of Madison, that would you know, be quite a, quite a tradition for that view. Uh, okay, thank you on, on all counts. I will say, in 1789, in a letter to Samuel Johnston, he does say that uh, precedents and expositions can settle the meaning, too. So settle appears uh, early, not just late. But I will be reading Watts on Logic when I get home. Uh, and I'm really looking. What's that? It's a logic, L O G I C K. Okay, logic with a K. Um, and, and I guess, again, I, I, I see that my, that my assumption, and maybe it is an overly heroic assumption of consistency, uh, I need to think more about it and, and either defend it more or give up on it. Um, Madison has answers to the 1811 problem. So he has answers to what about the fact that people were debating it in 1811, and he says it's true they were debating it, the debate was mostly on policy grounds, not on constitutional grounds. Now he might be wrong, I take, I take the point, he might be wrong and maybe even acting in bad faith. Uh, that is, he might really want to find a way to say this is liquidated and be overly stretching the precedence in order to get that answer. Uh, I think that's the tribute that the vice pays to virtue. That's a sign that that is the kind of thing that liquidation requires, even if even if Madison was overly uh, eager, overly eager to find it. But uh, but I take that point too, um, Larry. So a liquidation trumps uh, the actual meaning of the Constitution, but it doesn't trump the clear meaning of the Constitution. So that is, uh, it can trump what you have decided the Constitution really means after thinking about it. But uh, it depends on how clear it is that you're, that you're right about it. So that's how Madison can give a long speech about why the bank is unconstitutional. That's a very good argument, I think probably correct. Uh, and then also recognize that the question was sufficiently ambiguous that he could be overruled on that one because the question was sufficiently ambiguous. And I think the structure, although this goes to, to some of uh, Bernie's questions, and, and I might be wrong about this too, I think the structure is that a liquidation is not of the same dignity as the written constitution. It's of a lesser dignity, which is why it has this uh, ambiguity requirement and some of these other requirements. But it's kind of in the same vein, and that's what explains why, uh, yes, a court can sometimes say that the Congress or the President has violated the liquidated meaning of the Constitution, um, that, that liquidation could sometimes be the basis for striking something down. So now we're on to uh, Larry Solom, Ryan Williams, and Guy Burnett. Thank you for the paper, Will. It's a great paper. Uh, so, and, you know, I've got more questions than I can possibly, and comments than I can possibly uh, 
uh, get out. But let me just focus on one thing, starting with Federalist 37, and then the discussion in the paper on pages 8 and 9 about indeterminacy. So uh, beginning with just a minor terminological <laughs> point that I think you really want to say underdeterminacy and not indeterminacy. So then I think that you want to be very careful in the way you characterize Madison's discussion uh, in terms of the modern uh, uh, vagueness ambiguity distinction. Uh, there's two entirely th different things going on here in my opinion. Federalist 37, Madison uh, in the passage immediately following liquidate is talking about Locke's theory of ideas Right, and, and saying that language just can't possibly ever be clear, right? So, um, uh, because, you know, words are not up to the task of, uh, of conveying ideas uh, uh, with precision in a non-obscure way. <coughs> so that's way different than what you're doing in uh, 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 equating obscurity with vagueness, and uh, uh, th that's just, I just don't think that that's correct. So, and I think that um, you wanna be, you wanna think through um, in a fuller way the difference between vagueness and open texture on the one hand and ambiguity on the other hand. As I understand the argument for the paper, it doesn't work very well. I, I think this is a version of Larry's comment. It doesn't work very well for vagueness and open texture. The arguments for liquidation, there's a normative mismatch. I, we could talk about that later. But And ambiguity, you run into this other set of problems, which you just discussed with respect to clarity, right? Um, the language either is contextually disambiguatable, and by the way, it's not just a word that's ambiguous. When, when Bernie was saying the meaning of the whole clause, that is ambiguity in the technical sense, right? Um, uh, or it's irreducibly ambiguous. So the, the, and those are two very different phenomena. If, if the language is subject to contextual disambiguation and we get it wrong, that's very different normatively than the language is irreducibly ambiguous, for example, because of intentional uh, ambiguity, uh, and it has to be resolved. Those are normatively two different situations, and I think the paper would do well. I might be wrong about you know, the specifics here, but I think the paper would be uh, stronger if you thought more carefully about the different sources here of a lack of clarity, because I think they have different normative implications, and therefore in the latter parts of the paper when you're talking about what we really should do now about this, all of that I think needs to be worked out in greater detail.
second all the comments on the great paper. I do have more comments than I'm going to be able to share. Uh, I want to focus on kind of two important distinctions between judicial precedent and non-judicial precedent as a general rule, and just see how this relates to your theory. One is a judicial decision usually become, comes accompanied with an explanation, so we know why they made the decision, which we can generalize to a rule. We don't usually have that with, sometimes have with the executive, we'll almost never have it with Congress. We'll have statements by individual legislators, legislators, possibly committees, but not a statement of Congress as a whole. So I guess how does that, and the second f feature is that a judicial decision, all the court is deciding is, is this lawful? Is this consistent with law? With an executive or legislative decision, you always have a bundle decision. Do we have the authority and is it a good idea? So I think this comes up most problematically for me in the case where Congress doesn't act, because in that case, you don't really have a clear evidence of was it a constitutional decision or was it a policy decision, and no way to answer that question. So the only evidence we're going to have of Congress's constitutional judgment is cases where they do act, where they say we do have this authority. And I wonder what kind of sort of hydraulic pressure that exerts on the shape of constitutional doctrine if we allow this liquidation theory to carry some weight. Okay, um, I absolutely love the paper. I thought it was really, really uh, interesting. And I did do the same thing. I actually asked a friend if he had ever heard of liquidation used in that manner. And he looked at me like I was crazy. So um, the answer, the answer that I found was no, and that was at a bar last night. So, um, <laughs> the, so, so the other two questions I have. Um, so the first one, um, I, I found this this uh, idea of this sort of train of precedent really interesting. Um, in order for liquidation to occur, and I think this, this is sort of what Sai was talking about as well. Um, how many, I guess, cases or decisions? have to be made before it is, okay, that's the precedent, so we need to change or whatever. Um, if it's not gonna be the star decisis, then is there a limit, like two, three, five, seven, nine, however? Um, and then the other thing that I thought was interesting about this, and, just, and this is just a thought I had, perhaps, um, is how much, if we go back to this, in, in this uh, liquidation matter, it seems that Madison, this would make sense with Madison, because this, com this really checks the judiciary. Right? This really makes a restrained judiciary in the sense because they can't just get in and change something. So if you have a 5-4 court split, it doesn't matter anymore because you have to wait you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of precedent, then you can change. So I think this is, this is an interesting way to sort of uh, see a Madisonian uh, separation of powers and checks and balances here because it does check the judiciary in a sense. So. Uh, thank you. Uh, so I don't. I, I take the point about it being hard to find uh, about sort of Congress not acting versus acting. Although I don't think it's impossible to find liquidation through inaction. I take it that's at least some of what's going on in debates about the spending power, where where Congress considers doing something using a freestanding spending power, and then after debate decides not to, or after debate decides to amend the statute in some way that that you know is consistent with Madison's theory. Um, I think part of this is, is more epistemic. It is just that it's much harder to find. Uh, and that, I think, is a, is a real problem, although I'm not sure whether it's, it may just be a practical problem, and there may be a couple ways to respond to it. So in a sense, uh, you know, maybe we take a lesson from John Marshall. So once the federal judiciary uh, realized how important having an explanation that reflected the views of the court was going to be in liquidating constitutional meaning, they got their act together and wrote uh, explanations. Uh, in a different way, so that they would have more force. Uh, and so it might be if liquidation became uh, more of what we did, Congress would similarly get its act together and accompany important constitutional interpretations with an opinion of Congress or something like that. People do occasionally propose this. This comes up in the even in the other versions of this literature where 
Uh, people point out that the executive branch has OLC, has all this ability to produce all this paper about constitutional law, and Congress has not use a, used the Office of Legal Counsel in the Senate and various things to do that. Now, obviously, Congress has so many people, there are reasons to think that might be harder for it to do, but, but there might be some ways it could at least try if it, if it cared. Uh, if it doesn't try, that might mean we just have to, have to look harder and maybe apply a little bit more of a generous uh, view to trying to find Congress's uh, deliberations. But, but I think it's a problem, but maybe more, more a retail problem. Um, Larry, points all well taken. I, we should talk more. I'm half tempted to go the opposite direction and try to, try to step back from all the modern uh, ways of thinking about all these different things because they're so far removed from how Madison talked about them, but that may not be the right thing to do, and, and uh, obviously modern linguistic theory can still apply to old language, just as modern chemistry can apply to old explosions. Um, a line I've seen going around lately. So, so maybe I'm not justified in doing that, but, but I take the point that my attempt to match uh, equivocal and obscure to vague and ambiguous may have been uh, too quick by more than half. All right, that's everyone. What's our next is Mike Rappaport, John McGuinness, and me. Okay, so, um, so you talk about this as a possibility of being an original method, um, and I, I, I think that's great to, to say that. Um, <laughs> is that term trademarked? <laughs> well, no, I'm turning down the trademark, even though I'm right now saying I, I, don't, I don't actually think of this as an original method. Um, so I think of, and, and I was trying to think about sort of why and whether that sort of would, would, would help in, in thinking about it. Um, so, so I tend to think about sort of interpretive rules as being about meaning. So that's an original method, whereas precedent, for example, I think of as a common law rule because um, it's not about the, the meaning of the document. Now, uh, at first I try to say, well, think, well, maybe part of the reason why this, I don't think about this as an original method is because it gives content over time past the, the enactment. But I don't think that's quite right because if, if we had dynamic rules of interpretation at the time, 1789, I would think those were original methods even though they, they gave power to judges to say what the Constitution was over time. So I don't think that can be it. Um, and, and I think what's, what's going on perhaps in, um, is that this is about uh, correct or not correcting a mistake, right? So, um, uh, so to the extent that liquidation is about saying, oh, well, like Madison, like your sense of Madison with the, with the bank, that was a mistake in the beginning to do that, but now it's been liquidated. To the extent it has that kind of um, character to it, uh, then, then it might not be an original method in, in my way of thinking about it. Whereas to the extent that you know, an early interpretation is reflective of the original meaning, that part of it might be an original method. So it, it would sort of fit in, so, so part of liquidation might be an original method in my sense, and, and part of it might not be. I, I don't know, I, I sort of, throw that out there for your, for your thinking about it. I suppose uh, another way to sort of get at this um, to, to just sort of really quickly is um, in terms of, of the law of interpretation view um, is, is a liquidation an adoption rule or is it an application rule? Um, 
which will give you different answers to whether it can change or not. John McGinnis. So my question is about the bindingness of liquidation. I certainly understand how it could be binding if we understand it as an original method or a, um, a part of the law of interpretation. As precedent, it's not so obvious to me. Maybe because it's common law, we look to someone like John Harrison who writes about precedent. This is all about, about evidence, and we, our views could change over time about about this. That's his his argument, at least uh, that precedent can change. And though, so even if so, in that sense, even if um, um, Madison is is well attested, that doesn't have it's interesting information for us, but is not binding on us today, even if that was generally thought. Now, but maybe this is evidence about really the way they thought about precedent that's inconsistent with just that evidentiary view, because it's just about the internal operations of courts and their evidence. It really isn't just that, because it's, it takes into account other branches. So one interesting idea, I think, in the paper is not only to look at liquidation through the prism of precedent, but to look at precedent through the prism of liquidation. <coughs> Liquidation as a thesis for Madison might well have been a device he was trying to, to, to gin up to, to deal with the pessimism he had that enumeration of power by subject could actually ever apportion power between the nation and the state. So that what he wanted was for congressional practice actually to produce the congressional omnipotence that he'd really wanted all along. Right? You go back to the the uh, the thing he pushed with Pinckney at, at the early stage to expand the negative to apply to all law, all state law, and to be, if you can be clear about this, a pre-approval power. That is to say, if Congress couldn't agree, no state laws, right? Extraordinary power he wanted to give to the Congress. And, and by the way, that's an elite Congress, right? Not a, not a, not, no state representation in the Senate in that Congress. This is an elite Congress is going to stop all state law that they don't like. And there's a letter of October 24 that he writes to Jefferson, so this is during the ratification debates, in which he expresses his ongoing skepticism that this is possible, any kind of apportionment. At the same time, he's writing 39 saying, of course, the Supreme Court will be the impartial arbiter. He's telling that to try to get the thing through. He's saying to Jefferson, I don't believe it. So this kind of thing is, I think, maybe a device of that kind to try to get Congress back on, on track. So if Madison's goal in liquidation was to help Congress have uh, the, the greater powers that he'd once tried to give it, he was pretty bad at it. Because uh, many of his uses of liquidation when he's in Congress are counter to broad power. Now, sometimes he, he loses those fights, and there are even arguments he loses those fights in part because of some skepticism some representatives have of him in particular. So maybe he's playing a really long con uh, in some way. Like, he knew if he gave a speech against the bank, it would go through for sure. Uh, uh, you know, the more I write about Madison, the more I admire him. So I don't want to rule out uh, that hypothesis. But that would, be, that would be amazing. That would be much better than fixing the notes and all the stuff we've, we've found out he did so far. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, Mike and John, uh, all points, all points well taken. So there's another way of thinking about liquidation, which is closer to what I understand Caleb Nelson to be to be leaning towards in his work. And obviously, I should say, uh, I owe a lot to Caleb's work on liquidation, even as I've slowly moved away from some of it. Uh, so, so Caleb sees it as more linguistic, and he unites liquidation to some sort of Enlightenment era theories of language. Um, and Samuel Johnson and the, and the dictionarists and, and people who had this faith, I guess it was the early editions of Samuel Johnson's dictionary, 
that uh, the reason to have a dictionary was because if you eventually wrote all the words and their definitions down, all ambiguity in the language would go away. It's just a matter of getting a good enough dictionary that includes all the words. And then eventually they, they give up on that project by the fifth or sixth edition. They recognize that won't happen. And that plays into some of the, uh, the lock stuff and some of the, the debates about language. So, so there is that other theme in it. It's not most of what, of what Madison talks about, uh, both early and late, but a little bit of it's in there. And so there may be part of what's going on is two different ideas kind of both going on. And I may be uh, emphasizing, I think correctly, but emphasizing one part of the story. Um, and I need to think about whether, whether the other part of the story plays in. Uh, in a similar way, uh, I'm not sure about the answer to this either, but you could see Madison as saying liquidation just is judicial precedent. It's the same idea. So if judicial precedent is common law, liquidation is common law, et cetera. Or you could see him as sort of just arguing by analogy. And there are a lot of reasons that precedent makes sense, and he draws on those. And so he's using those to show why liquidation makes sense, even if formally liquidation has a quite different, uh, different non-common law status. And I think he's doing the latter, although I'm not sure exactly why I think that, other than that was sort of my sense of everything that I read. But these are both great ambiguities. All right, Richard Primus, uh, John McHale, and Ilya Simon. Well, I like the paper. Um, two points, or two questions. One institutional, one theoretical interpretive. I'll state them both briefly. The institutional question is sort of a flip on part of Guy's inquiry. The idea of something like jurisprudence constante, it's, it's attractive in lots of ways. How does it map onto an institution like the modern federal judiciary? Um, which is hierarchical and geographically diverse and renders decisions about nationwide laws that are predicated on the idea of there being a uniform scheme and where a series of decisions on a point from the Supreme Court could only arise over, let's say, 14 years, right? I mean, that is, a, we don't take the same case back, right? Like, there are a small number of cases, it takes a while, right? It might be too long, or I'd like to just thoughts about, would it be too long a period of unsettlement for a kind of law that is about like network effect regulation or other sorts of things that, that they often pass on right in the modern era? Might jurisprudence constante fit better with the judicial institution that either looks like diverse common law courts ruling at the same time, right, um, or an institution that isn't concerned mostly with regulatory law, right, and that might not need the same sort of like you know, general settlement quickly. That's thing one. Thing two, it's about the nature of ambiguity, right? So you say, first you have to determine whether the relevant constitutional text is ambiguous. If it is, you can liquidate, right? Um, and a couple of pages after you explain this, you you talk about Chevron analogies, which I think is appropriate. Like that, we should think of that as an analogy. And here appear Vermeule and Stevenson to say, <coughs> Chevron has only one step. And in this context, what that means is this. The, whether a text is ambiguous is not a static property of the text. Right? Um, the practice of law, the contestation of legal questions, is frequently about persuading the audience that something that you didn't think was ambiguous is, right? It doesn't only go the other way, right? Sometimes we, we, we thought that we understood this or we thought that the boundaries of this were between you know, D and F. It is only under the pressure of a situation that makes us confront G, like where we see 
right? What might be at stake in G in ways that we didn't before because our brains weren't focused on it or whatever it is, that it becomes plausible to think, you know what? It's the range isn't just D to F. It might go to G also. The question here is, can we actually disentangle the property of the ambiguity from the property of the content of the settlement or the content of the interpretation being proposed? Or is it the case that, um, uh, that, that, that it doesn't work in that sequenced way? So I actually have uh, almost the exact opposite intuition from Lawrence uh, about the significance of Federalist 37. And since he uh, raised that point, I think I'll go on this question or this comment. Um, I actually think, Will, you're right that what Madison originally was doing with liquidation, the idea, you have to kind of understand 37 in its context. It's the first essay of the, of the second volume. It's the first essay that Madison writes um, after all of the heavily Federalist states have ratified and when, when the much more anti-Federalist states are now about to um, look at the Constitution. And Madison was unhappy about the text in very fundamental ways. And he knew that there were clauses of the Constitution that were going to be a really tough sell in Virginia. And in particular, the two most important were the sweeping clause and the general welfare clause. And he, in effect, is writing, I think, a love letter to Edmund Randolph. He's trying to convince Virginia Federalists that even though the text is not on their side, it's okay because all language is ambiguous and these sweeping grants of power can be liquidated in the sense of eliminated, in the sense of reduced down to size, uh, the, the way, same way you eliminate a debt or, or liquidate a debt. And that's what he actually set out to do uh, at that point in time. And he was successful because it, you know, they, they were able to squeak by in Virginia with patently implausible interpretations of those clauses, frankly. That's my view. Maybe others wouldn't agree. But then what you are uncovering for us is he then is committed to a certain kind of jurisprudential view about ambiguity in the Constitution and the way that practice can, in fact, settle a meaning even when uh, the more plausible reading you know, maybe, maybe points the other way. And I think what you've pointed out and, and given us is a kind of a very interesting uh, longitudinal study, as it were, of Madison's ideas over time about this practice. I just don't think, however, that you can understand what Madison is originally doing without coming to grips with the fact that he was very unhappy about these parts of the text. These are, last point I'll make is that these are the two places at which, in which at various points in time he has to come out and say actually there is surplusage in the Constitution, both with respect to the sweeping clause and the general welfare clause. He has to say Sometimes they just didn't get it very precisely, and there's some extra stuff in the Constitution that we have to understand how to interpret. And that's just more evidence that he was trying to liquidate those clauses. fascinating paper and a lot of great material. I do think that if your goal is to persuade people that liquidation is something that should be a modality of interpretation that we apply, then the question of what it takes to deliquidate something is going to be one that probably needs a little bit more attention in that you mentioned at the start uh, Scalia saying people should just get over Bush versus Gore because it happened. Obviously, he doesn't feel that, we didn't feel that way about Roe versus Wade, right? He never got over that one, not even 40 years uh, after it occurred. Why? Because he thought it was bad enough that it should be overruled, even if it had been a on the books 
for a long time. And similarly, one reason why precedent, at least for many people, is an acceptable modality is because if it's bad enough, there's a body that has the authority to overrule it, the Supreme Court. Uh, here, uh, it seems like if we're not to be trapped into sort of liquidations that are truly awful because some awful political movement came into power at a particular point in time and considered the issue five times or however many times it takes to consider it, there has to be a mechanism of de-liquidation. Uh, otherwise, I think this modality is deeply problematic. It might be problematic for other reasons, but this is a particularly uh, dangerous one. And I actually find the stuff that uh, you quoted from Madison about Jackson and the bank as being very troubling in that regard. And I'm, I'm no particular fan of Jackson. He, he was an awful person in many ways. I can see why Madison didn't like him. Nonetheless, if a massive political movement sweeps the country and removes the bank, not just on policy grounds, but because they had constitutional objections as well, which if you look at the veto message they clearly did, uh, it seems to me that if that doesn't count as de-liquidation, then you might you wonder what, what would count as it. And uh, it seems like you, you, there has to be a theory of de-liquidation, and that theory may not be that easy to come up with given that it's hard to find a single focal point decision maker. Maybe would it be that Congress five times considers the issue again and passes five bank repeal bills or whatever? Would it? Would it be that a public opinion poll showed that a large enough percentage of the population thinks that the whatever it is is unconstitutional? I, I think of other things, but I think I'm not saying these are the specific mechanisms of deliquidation, but there's going to be some mechanism of deliquidation. Uh, otherwise, the theory has many of the same problems as sort of an absolute theory of precedent, which says that you know, it's wrong to overrule Plessy versus Ferguson or whatever, uh, or Dred Scott once it gets on the, you know, on the books. Uh, yeah, so. I hope you'll all, you'll all come. Uh, uh, yeah. So one, one interesting thing I, I, I sometimes sit there and think about is sort of how much longer would it have taken for Madison maybe to think the bank had been deliquidated? So, you know, there are rumors that the, Tawny Court was kind of ready to overturn McCulloch versus Maryland. They got the right, basically, if Congress had reauthorized the bank, but then they'd gotten a chance to strike it down, and various other cases that could have presented the similar issue on the side. And I sort of wonder, like, could, how far along would that process have to go uh, to count? I assume there's some point at which it would count as a deliquidation, and it was just that the Jackson alone wasn't enough. Um, so, uh, but I, I take all, all the point. In a way, uh, liquidation's uh, plausibility may be weirdly free-riding on the fact that not everybody believes in liquidation and that uh, different people have different thresholds of ambiguity. So precisely because there are enough uh, sort of hardcore constitutional fundamentalists out there on given questions, they have the ability to reopen a question that the Madisonians would, would, would feel like shouldn't be reopened. Uh, uh, so there could be a sort of strange uh, dependence on the on the the cranks and the oddballs, which which would be an odd feature for the whole thing to have, although although not uh, out of the question. Um, there is in two places Madison makes a reference to liquidation. Uh, also, in addition to the ambiguity requirement, that maybe in extraordinary circumstances they're not binding. Uh, and I sort of wondered, like, what what's that? Uh, it doesn't come up very often, uh, and so so you know, I just sort of wonder: is that a random caveat, or is that is that supposed to be assuaging uh, Ilya's concerns? Um, I, I take all of John's <laughs> points on Federalist Thirty Seven. This is another argument, I guess, for for bringing the chronology and the question of sort of 
Madison's consistency uh, into it into it in some place, um, even if I'm ultimately going to try to construct uh, sort of one liquidated uh, theory of liquidation. Uh, so on Richard's questions, um, I'm not so sure it's weird to have a jurisprudence constant theory even in our federal system. It's not like all of the Supreme Court justices are Byron White, who think that every time there's a circuit split on a question of federal law, the court has to resolve them. And there are a huge number of constitutional law questions on which there have been circuit splits for long periods of time, and the court just ignores them. Uh, and then eventually it feels like it should solve them, and it solves them. So I guess the effect of this might just be to say that if the court had the sense that some question was going to need solving, it would have more incentive to take at least one case sooner rather than later so that it could start working towards a solution. But all, and also might, might even encourage them to take one because they'd know that they'd get multiple cuts to the question rather than have to think, okay, we're only going to be able to resolve this hard sentencing question once. Are we, are we ready for it? So, so in a way, you know, I'm not sure that the uniformity of federal law is quite as, as uniform as we sometimes, as the court likes to pretend it is because it just ignores the stuff that it, that it doesn't like. Um, the nature of ambiguity, uh, stuff I need to think more about as we've already talked about. In a sort of a dark moment uh, as I was nearing the end of the paper, I started to talk myself into something like what, what you were describing, which also has some resonance with uh, the Siegel and uh, Bradley piece on sort of constructed constraint in the constitutional text that ambiguity is constructed by practice and practice is constructed by ambiguity and in the end it's all kind of a circle of uh, that doesn't really have have that much structure and so that maybe this was all just kind of a, a weird uh, set of, of pirouettes I think that's not right still but uh, but there have been times when I started to, to even talk myself into that and then to think that I could even come up with a Madisonian defense of all of that so maybe that'll come up in constitutional deliquidation but I'm hoping I'll I'll find the light before then all right, one last trio, uh, David Upham, Randy Barnett, and Mitch Berman. Um, as I mentioned to you privately, I, I, I really very much like the paper, and it was really elegantly written, and I, I mean this with, I, with all due envy. It's really, I really, I wish I could write that well. Um, with respect to the sequence, it might be appropriate when discussing the first Congress, and especially Madison's statement, to there introduce the question, the, the issue which you introduced at the end, which is that the... Um, Original liquidation may be more evidence of originalism. Um, and I was waiting for that at the time. At the end, it came in. Um, you may want to note when you discussed the Lincoln test that he was making it with reference to McCulloch, because Douglas was a McCulloch bad, but Dred Scott is a thus saith the court guy. And Lincoln said in response, no, Dred Scott bad. And by the way, um, why don't you acquiesce in McCulloch? Because it, it will just tie the points together more in your paper. Um, I just want to emphasize in 37. I, I think um, I think Matt Madison says is, suggests a far greater textual failure than you suggest because he says all laws have to and and the use of the word obscure and equivocal. Um, I won't get into details, but that that suggests there's just something really wrong with language, not that there's some fringe marginal things. But I'll I'll, I'll maybe discuss that privately. Yeah, we um, need to uh, wrap this up. Actually, okay, we've only got done. like three or four more minutes, and I'm the done. shuttle will be here. I'm done. Yeah. 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 Well, the paper sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I just sent University of Chicago. I just want to make you feel more welcome here. Um, that was great. It was. Uh, <laughs>
it's a great, it's a great paper. Um, I, I want to push a little bit about the res judicata point, which you kind of raise in your paper. Why isn't liquidation, if there is such a thing, more like res judicata than like precedent, like we think of as precedent, in which I view, for example, Madison as congressman says, look, the bank isn't necessary, therefore it's unconstitutional, among other things. Then I'm going fast. And then, then as president, he he justifies his signing the bank bill by saying, well, you know, it kind of be kind of presumptuous of me. Over time, we've had this bank; it's kind of proved to be worthwhile. It's all, and he refers to it as the almost necessity of it. So where am I, who am I to say otherwise? And then, and then Jackson comes along and says, hey, look, McCulloch says it's up to us, it's up to the legislature to decide necessity. The president, by virtue of the veto power, is a legislative power. I say it's unnecessary, therefore I say it's unconstitutional. But it's all about the bank. It's about the bank is in, the bank is out. The bank is in, the bank is out. It's not about this wonderful McCulloch versus Maryland principle of constitutional law about the broad meaning of necessary and proper. That wasn't liquidated. And in fact, Madison objects to McCulloch on the grounds that it's this this super big opinion by Marshall. He says, I wish we had seriatim opinions so we could hear what all the other justices have to say about this. So in a way, my secondary question is, where do seriatim opinions fit in? Because until uh, Marshall, we only have seriatim opinions. And all, therefore, all we have is bank in, bank out. And six justices tell us why they think it's in or out. But we don't have a precedent of the court. So why isn't it just res judicata? Banks are in. Social Security, res judicata, we're not going to go back and deal with it again, but we're not going to use the principle that is used to uphold Social Security to uphold some new spending bill. I was struck by your, by the changes in our, in stare decisis, which I thought was really interesting. You and I had a conversation last year at this very conference where we were talking about our different takes on the positive turn uh, in which you were uh, making a positive turn to the law of interpretation, and I'm interested in what is the constitutional law, right? You recall that. So I'd like you to play on my field for a moment and think about this change in the stare decisis model. If we're thinking not in terms of what judges should do, law of interpretation, what the law is, one might think it is presently the case that what the court has just said is the law. And we, to say that the stare decisis model is a changing is a changing in my terms and terminology of principle, but in any event, it is something which actually has a constitutive relationship to what the content of the law is, and it itself is dynamic. And related to that, when you talk about liquidation being sufficiently wide, widespread, I wonder really how hearty you are, and whether your viewers, in saying this was the law, you really mean it satisfies whatever test Hart has with respect to the convergence of the official behaviors uh, in order to validate it, or whether your understanding of what, what, the, what the conditions are that make something the law, the law of liquidation or what have you, are softer, more dynamic, less crisp, and less demanding than the Hardian model would suggest. Uh, yes, to the latter. Okay. <laughs>